are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. 502. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 1067 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Wednesday afternoon, hump day. How's everybody doing? Lance, what's up, my man? Not a whole lot, Noah. Just just making it happen. Uh, hump day is probably best day of the week. No cap. You came in here pretty low energy. I'm trying to bring it. Trying to bring it up. Electrifying. Yeah, uh, you know, after lunch, I just hit a wall for some reason. I'm trying to trying to get out of the funk. I'm sure many people have seen Step Brothers. It's the Catalina wine mixer. Pa! <laughs> this is on the line. Pa! Here we go. Wednesday afternoon edition of the show, and we've got some college basketball news, Auburn basketball news in specific. Lance, take it away. Yeah, so it was just announced just an hour or so ago that Auburn will play Nebraska in a neutral site game December 11th in Atlanta. The Nebraska Cornhuskers from the Big Ten went 7-20 and last season, and uh, uh, y'all know me. I have a, a Auburn basketball fan page on Instagram, and I'm in a group chat with some other fan pages. And the Nebraska fan page immediately tagged me and said, "Looks like we're winning by 45." And then immediately followed it up before I could say anything. Is like, "Yeah, we're probably losing by a million, and Walker Kessler will have 20 and 20." It's like, "Yep, yeah, that's, that's probably about accurate, considering your team stinks." And you know, we're winning two the national years title. ago, COVID year, when everything shut down and we didn't get the NCAA tournament, Nebraska was going to be an NCAA tournament team. They're one shot at that. This is not typically a good basketball program. And right now they're going back through the process of rebuilding their program. Will they be better than 7-20 and 20 this upcoming year? Probably. How much better? Debatable. This is a fun matchup for Auburn in holiday hoops giving. A little bit different than what they had to contend with last year. Didn't they play Memphis in Atlanta last year? Yes, it was the Jalen Green Bowl in, in Atlanta last year. One of my favorite games of the season. I think that was one of Auburn's most impressive wins of last season. I agree, based on the, what the roster looked like. And JT or Justin Powell just, again, just absolutely popping off. I believe that was a stretch where he had back-to-back 26-point games. And uh, he, he, he played tremendous force in that game. We sit at a moment right now, from what we know about Auburn basketball schedule, where I believe right now, based on what we know of what's been reported and what still may happen, because we're waiting to see if they're going to fix that home and home with Washington where Auburn mm-hmm. might have to go to Seattle to play Washington this year where we stand right now there are just as many if not more and quite outnumbering there are more FBS level teams than FCS level teams and I know that that is a football terminology but what I'm trying to say is there are more teams that you would see in the FBS level of college football and Auburn schedule for basketball right now than there are some of those small conference teams that you would see. I think the only small conference teams that I can think of at the moment, St. Louis and North Alabama have been reported, but the list goes on. You talk about the battle for Atlantis. You're playing some of the best basketball programs in college basketball, period, any round it could be. And then you've got Nebraska, potential for Washington. USF is on that schedule. This is a loaded basketball schedule for Auburn. 
Yeah, and it's something Bruce Pearl's tried to do throughout his his tenure at Auburn, and he's, he's tried to bring in the most talented teams to play, I think specifically because he wanted to see if he could get Auburn's R- RPI up, and also he just wanted to be able to prove that Auburn could compete against the best competition that there is out there, and bringing in programs like Nebraska and Washington and NC State a year or so ago, it, it, he, he's trying to prove that Auburn can hang with the big guys, and I really like it whenever he schedules matchups like this, because while I do believe Auburn's winning the national championship and they will win this game by 50, I think it's still a fun matchup because it's, a, in theory, like you said, it's it's football terminology, but this is a Power 5, Power 6 team still. 100%. They may be a bad basketball program on average, but this is still a power conference opponent from the Big Ten. And if you don't play your best game, and the other team does, anybody can get you on any night in college basketball. So Auburn's going to need to bring it. There's a lot more parity in college basketball, and there's a lot more room for upsets. And I, I think that's... I don't think that's a hot take. I think that's pretty, pretty, pretty blatant, pretty, pretty factual. Whenever you look at the the, the sport compared to uh, college football, so anything can happen in those type of games. I agree with you. Number to call three three four three two one thirteen ninety. Also, our text line three three four five six four one eight four zero. Find Lance and I on Twitter at Point Gardner at Daw Pound. All valid and great ways to get in touch with our show. Once again, the phone line if you want to call in live, 334-321-1390. Also, text us at 334-564-1840. Whatever is on your mind, we'll talk about it. We're going to continue our Auburn football schedule analysis series. Yesterday, we were talking about the Arkansas Razorbacks. We didn't get to finish that up. We really didn't even get to finish up the offensive side of the football. Let's briefly go back through the offensive side of the ball, and then we'll talk a bit about the defense here. Take everybody, take everybody back through your rankings for the offensive side of the football, Lance. All right, so let's start back at the top with the quarterback situation. And obviously, K.J. Jefferson, the projected starter for the Razorbacks this season, I've got this room great as, as a C. I don't think Jefferson's going to be great, but I think he should be solid. Something to note about Jefferson, though, is his career completion percentage is less than 50%. It's sitting at 48.7, so not the most accurate quarterback in his sparing time here with the Razorbacks. But he, numbers-wise, wasn't like he, – he, he didn't he – didn't, put anything on record that would give me cause for concern he wasn't throwing interceptions a whole lot he was throwing touchdowns and he was able to run the ball just a little bit during his time there I'm just interested it's very similar to the Emory Jones situation even though in this situation you don't have a quarterback whisperer in Dan Mullen you have Arkansas's coaching staff and Sam Pittman and Kendall Bryles and Kendall Bryles which actually now that I think about it that could be really fun to see what Jefferson looks like in a Bryles offense but still to be fair I still see more similarities between Kendall Bryles and Gus Malzahn and then something else that's more positive to compare Kendall Bryles to right right I I see in Jefferson uh, a solid SEC quarterback middle of the pack seventh sixth best in the SEC maybe I, I give this room a solid C Moving on to running back, I've got them graded as a B because not because on, on paper they look any any over overly impressive. I'm just really high on this group this season. I really liked what I saw from Traylon Smith last season, and if you're an Auburn fan, you got to watch him get 
a load of carries and touches in that Auburn-Arkansas game. I mean, he was getting the ball out of the backfield, but it felt like every single play. When they were throwing it to him in the flat, they were they were throwing screen passes for him, they were handed it off. It was it was the Traylon Smith show that rainy day in Auburn, but I really have high hopes for him this season with an offensive line that brings back all five of its starters. I think he's going to be exciting to watch, and then his backup, TJ Hammonds, is a senior. He's been in the game since 2016. Whenever you watch him on film, you see his numbers. He played somewhat of a Stanton Truett type role like Auburn had back in 2016, kind of that hybrid back receiver running back type role. I think he's going to be somebody to look out for as well because obviously Smith at 5'9", 185 is not going to be able to carry the load. Uh, every single game for the Razorbacks. So I'd give that room a solid B because I think there's a lot of upside there. I'm just really excited based on what I've seen on paper that this team or this group could make a significant jump in 2021. Do you have any thoughts on either of those groups? I think when I look at the Arkansas offense right now, a lot of it has to do with scheme, and I just don't trust it because earlier I was talking about Kendall Bryles and somebody that I see a pretty decent comparison to, at least in the way that he's called the offense to this point. I see a lot of similarities between him and Gus Malzahn. Looking at what Pro Football Focus wrote about Arkansas and broke down about Arkansas in their preview magazine, you look at their breakdown of pass plays and what they called and you look at the routes and the depth of which their routes were run at 54 percent of their pass plays were play action that's a lot like Gus Malzahn 25 percent were screen passes which was third nationally in percentage of pass plays being called for screens that that's got Gus Malzahn written all over it the big thing here is you look at Arkansas they don't push the ball downfield a whole lot 13% of their pass plays were deep balls. Everything's at or within 5 to 10 yards of the line of scrimmage and really within 5 yards of the line of scrimmage. In the SEC, you can't stretch the field horizontally if you don't have better athletes than everybody. I wonder if Arkansas has better athletes than everybody. And that's why I'm curious what you think about this group, at least at wide receiver for Arkansas and what they could do. And if stretching the field horizontally is actually a viable option for them or if we will continue to see more of the same on the offensive side of the ball from Arkansas. Average and nothing better. Well, the only guy in the receiver room that I think can legitimately stretch the field is Traylon Burks, and he's probably going to be the go-to guy all season for the Razorbacks. I would grade this group at a C. It's just Traylon Burks, and that's it. And if Mike Woods has stayed, I think this would be a B-tier receiver room. Burks is going to carry. They've got a couple of other interesting pieces in this offense. Something to, uh, to note is that Burks is 6'3", like 230, and one of his partners in that receiver room, Trey Knox, is 6'5", 230 as a junior. I'm really excited to see what both of those guys are going to be able to do. And then the shortest guy that's a projected starter by Athlon Sports is Devion Warren. He's a senior number 10. He has more of an impact in the return game. And I talked about this briefly on yesterday's show as a freshman in 2017, led the SEC and ranked 13th nationally with a 26.3 kickoff return average as a senior, yeah, as a senior last season heading into his, his fifth year with the Razorbacks now. But last year, he returned a team-high 16 kickoffs for 326 yards. That's an average of 20.4 yards per return. I mean, this guy's dangerous in the open field whenever you get him the ball in space, especially in the return game. So he's somebody else that I could, I would like to keep my eye on. I don't know if he's necessarily going to be able to stretch the field, per se, because as a senior, he's heading into his senior season. And again, he's not done a whole lot of that during his time with Arkansas. But I'm excited to see the explosiveness that could be out of this unit because they're tall, they're physical, 
and Burks is going to be incredibly explosive. So I'm exci- I'm excited. If they had Mike Woods, I think this would be a B-tier receiver room. Playing devil's advocate here with you, though, I wonder with a brand new quarterback that has limited experience, how much does he focus on Traylon Burks and how much of this offensive scheme does this become about Traylon Burks? And the more that it becomes about Traylon Burks, I actually think that works and has the opposite effect that Arkansas would want. Obviously, you want to get the ball in your best playmaker's hands more times than not. But when you only have one playmaker, really, on the offensive side of the ball that is better than the majority of defenders that they will face on the other side of the ball, I think you would agree that Traylon Burks is the only player that fits that category, is better than more than half of this conference, what you'll face on the defensive side of the ball and what will line up across from him. Traylon Burks is an outstanding receiver. But if if the offense becomes about him, it almost limits what he can do because defenses can say, all right, who do we have to take out of the ballgame? We have to take out Traylon Burks. And it's actually quite easy to focus on him because you know what Arkansas is primarily trying to do. So you try and match up and figure out how you fix that. And if you do, Arkansas, I don't know if they have another tool in their toolbox to be able to get anything going offensively. We saw that a lot with Seth Williams at Auburn. When I look at Traylon Burks, I see Seth Williams. A better version, actually, but I do see Seth Williams. I think, for me, there's optimism in this offense, and I think there are other players in this offense that I have optimism and hope for. Knox being one of them at six foot five, I feel like he could be a weapon in this offense. Again, statistically, he's not been anything incredibly impressive. I agree with you. Most of these guys on this offense are probably not better than half of the SEC in terms of like guys that would be defending them. But I do have optimism for them. And like I said, I've got this running back room graded as a B because I just am optimistic. There's nothing on paper to reflect that they're a B tier off or running back room. Arkansas has a good track record with running backs over the last decade. Despite how putrid the team has been, they've had good running backs. I'm just excited to see what happens. Now, talking about the offensive line, I've got them graded somewhere between between a C and a B because they bring back five starters, but it was from a unit that was 115th nationally in sacks allowed per game last season. Do y'all remember when Arkansas was good on the offensive line back in like 2014 through 2016, like the Brett Bielema days where everybody was talking about like, oh, Arkansas has got the biggest offensive line in the country and like all these guys are going to get drafted, yada, yada, yada. And now that he's gone, I, I really have concerns for this unit moving forward. But I think the positive thing to note is while one year older doesn't mean one year better, they're still bringing back four upperclassmen on this offensive line oh pro football focus has this o-line ranked as the fifth best offensive line in the conference they should improve and i think that's going to benefit jefferson some of these big time receivers and then traylon smith who is the the you know who their head coach is this is a rhetorical question but who's their head coach sam Pittman. right and what did he do before he got to arkansas he was an offensive line coach for who uh, was it for Arkansas? No, it was for Georgia. It was for Georgia. So Who consistently has outstanding offensive lines and is consistently putting offensive linemen into the NFL. So I'm with you. I think the offensive line actually could end up being the best unit for Arkansas on that side of the ball. From a from a comprehensive standpoint, I think the offensive line is probably the best bet to be the best side of to be the best position group on that side of the football and I think to to credit that literally all you need to say is that Sam Pittman was the offensive line coach at Georgia and Arkansas is bringing back all five starters is like so there's there's reason to believe that the unit should be a lot better there's going to be development that takes place there now is having a 
is having a top tier it's not elite it's not in that category but I definitely think if I was tearing off the SEC you know I would put Alabama and Georgia's offensive lines in tier one Mm -hmm. I would put Arkansas's offensive line in tier two among a couple of other teams is having a tier two offensive line in the SEC enough to actually take this offense that is limited and I know you're optimistic but still I'm trying to put this in the perspective of Arkansas versus the the average defense in the SEC and I still question whether or not Arkansas has the firepower and the skill position players in their arsenal to actually improve this offense enough statistically to make a difference drastically in wins and losses to get them to a bowl game I don't see it with them this year. And I'm wondering how patient Arkansas is with Sam Pittman. Not to say that he's going to get fired after this year because I don't believe that will happen. You can actually see improvement from the dumpster fire that Arkansas was under Chad Morris. You can actually see improvement there. So I think they are relatively patient, but I wonder if he will be on the hot seat going into 2022. It's kind of funny to say that considering we haven't played this football season yet. We haven't even gotten to media days for this football season yet, but I'm just projecting it out. I'm not certain that Arkansas is ready to take that step this year. Will they be ready two years from now? That remains to be seen. I'm excited to see what happens not this season, but next season, because they will bring back six or seven starters, including if KJ Jefferson stays a quarterback who's 6'3, 240. And if he's improved at all, I would be excited heading into his junior season. Also, with the trajectory in which Mississippi State appears to be trending, of course, ESPN FBI disagrees with us, but. No, they didn't. it's not that they dis- disagree, they're just straight up wrong. <laughs> that's, how you should, that's how you should view it. To you and I, it looks like Mississippi State. It's trending in the wrong direction. And if there are two coaches that I would label as two coaches that could not be at their respective schools after this season, there are two coaches that come to mind immediately for me. And that would be Ed Orgeron and Mike Leach. And Mike Leach, more so for on-the-field results. Ed Orgeron, more so for off-the-field chaos combined with on-the-field results that could be less than optimal. But Mike Leach just isn't really a culture fit at Mississippi State. At least it doesn't appear to be. And I'm not super high up with what they've got coming back this year. I don't understand where ESPN's FBI has them at eight wins this year. If Mississippi State were to somehow miss a bowl game this year, I don't know if Mike Leach is in Starkville after this year. And then that leaves room for Arkansas to move up in the SEC West hierarchy. Mississippi State is the most overtakable team for Arkansas in the SEC West hierarchy, which would get them to a bowl game in the future if they can handle their business and their non-conference schedule. I think there is room to be optimistic about the Arkansas program over the next couple of seasons, maybe even more so than the Mississippi State program. Especially with those two coordinators, if they do, if Pittman manages to keep them in Bryles and Odom, I mean, those guys have respective track records. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we talk about the Atlanta Hawks and what they did last night against the Milwaukee Bucks. Despite not having Trey Young, Atlanta, even the series, have the scales tipped in their favor. You're listening on the line. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Zach Blackerby with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Zach Blackerby of the Locked On Auburn podcast here for the Wednesday edition of On the Line. Zach, how you doing today, my man? I am doing well. It's always an honor to be on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl. Well, let's get into it right away. A little Auburn football talk. We got a smorgasbord of topics. We had some texters 
get in touch with us on our new text line. And so I'm going to ask you some of those questions as well throughout our segment here. But I want to start in the transfer portal with you. Demetrius Robertson, linked to Auburn. But I'm curious, do you know how serious this is? What info do you have on the topic? It seems like they've gone after a handful of wide receivers that have entered the transfer portal. For whatever reason, Auburn has not finished first for any of these guys. We don't know if they finished second. We don't know if they finished way down the line or, you know, with a bunch of other schools you know, kind of making better sales pitches to them. And granted, how serious was Auburn for all of those guys? That's that's another question too, and it's just there's so much about this transfer portal situation that that we don't know, and we never will know, because it's not the same type of process as it is recruiting. It's not these kids taking official visits and and things like that. There's a lot less documentation going on with all of this, and, and it happens so fast. A lot of the times, these guys will enter the transfer portal, and then a day or two later, they've made their decision, and we're just supposed to believe that there's no tampering going on. We're just living under the assumption that you know all of it is clean. But I think. Um, you know, as far as Robinson being in the portal, I think we all agree it'd be nice to have an experienced or a more experienced wide receiver on this team and in this offense and helping Bo Nix out. But for whatever reason, the two positions that I thought they would go after the most, they have not done much at all. I thought it'd be wide receiver and offensive tackle. And it seems like there's been more receivers in the portal than there have been offensive tackles. So I, I understand why they haven't brought home a new tackle yet. Well, there is a new offensive tackle in the portal the recently. The LSU guy. That's right. Yeah. Dari Rosenthal. Thoughts on that? Uh, I think it makes a whole lot of sense to, to get a guy like that. Um, I think you definitely got to pick up the phone and, and ask the question if he's interested and get him, uh, get him as close to campus as possible as far as trying to convince him to, to stay in the SEC and come to Auburn. That That's the position of need biggest in my mind I think the the talent is there with the wide receivers and I think the growing pains that we will see in 2021 are okay I think it's worth it because they are talented we've seen glimpses there we've seen the four stars next to their names I think the talent is there at receiver at tackle I don't think it's there I don't think there's any kind of growing pain or whatever it's just pain (laughs) <laughs> that's fair at the tackle positions and like look I'm fine with Austin Troxel it looks like he's gonna be the favorite to start at left tackle this year but one I would love more competition to to force him to be better to push him a little bit more but also I mean I, I hate to label a guy as injury prone but like do you trust Austin Troxel to finish the season if he starts day one in 2021 I don't really trust any of these offensive linemen because which ones have really finished the year unscathed Tayshawn Manning, I think it may be a strength of this. Brandon Council's the best lineman, but we all saw his injury, and then he suffered another injury that kept him out of spring. Nick Brahms last year just put together his first full season since he's since he's been on campus. And then Ham Ham was pretty sturdy That's last right. year, if I if I recall correctly. But I don't, still, I, like half of the offensive line has right. not finished a full season really ever. Yeah, and so I mean that's that's definitely a big uh, big part of it. Keandre Jones came up huge when Council went down. There really wasn't much of a drop off there, so I think the guards are fine. Um, but but yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's perfectly reasonable for Auburn fans to not trust uh, many members of the offensive line. But yeah, I've been shocked that we haven't seen them go after more tackles. We've seen them go after receivers. We haven't really seen them go after offensive tackles. But that could be just because there's not as many there. Or, hey, maybe Harson came in and Will Friend came in and they had conversations and they liked the group of guys that they have. And that would be a really positive way to look at it. I'm curious how this coaching staff has been approaching it because you asked the question a few moments ago, where did Auburn finish with some of these guys? And I feel like this coaching staff may be having a little bit more scrutiny, a little bit more discernment 
in the transfer portal than maybe the previous coaching staff might have might have had I feel like the previous coaching staff wait all right is this guy talented if he is we're bringing him in right I feel like this coaching staff did that but whereas Brian Harson seems to be a little bit more focused on things such as culture things such as discipline things that aren't necessarily talent related but are more to how they're going to fit with his program and his vision and that may be a reason why Auburn hasn't landed some of these guys in the transfer portal on the offensive side of the ball because he may have not have seen that yet. And you look at the two guys that we've just mentioned, Demetrius Robertson and Dari Rosenthal, they both had a relatively difficult time staying on the field for both of these universities for one reason or another. Right, yeah, culture's definitely going to come into play. And I think the best example of that is Tony Fair, the big defensive tackle from UAB. Older guy, it's like an eighth-year senior, something ridiculous like that. And he's um, he's coming down with one year left. He's got a family, and he is coming down because he knows he has one more year to put tape, uh, put out some good tape for NFL teams to be interested in him. It's a business trip for him. That was a business decision, and so he went to go play for a defensive line coach that's coached in the NFL for a decade. I think that makes sense. So Tony Fair is a good example of the culture. You know, very business minded, football first, doing what it takes to get better. I love that. What's interesting, and you know, the two guys that we've mentioned, you know, as, as possibilities, I don't think are likely, but they are possibilities. They're from bigger schools, and with the exception of Eculiota being from Northwestern and Finley being from LSU, which are guys that may not even play that much in 2021, we'll have to wait and see. I definitely don't think Finley will. Eculiota, I mean, people are all over the map regarding you know what he could possibly do. I think his potential sky high, but is it actually going to come to you know, fruition? That's that's what we got to look at. But a lot of these things, or a lot of these guys, are from um, from smaller schools, and I think that has been one of the more interesting things as he's kind of gone through uh, getting some of these guys. We had Ed call into our show yesterday, Ed. and Ed asked us. Ed. Ed was talking to us a bit about a color that I put on Auburn's recruiting. I said green light. You know that 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 means go right. Things are doing things are doing fine. Yellow light means caution. There's room to be concerned here, but I would not be panicking. Red means panic, and I graded Auburn's color with recruiting right now as yellow. I, I said that there's reason to be concerned right now. Just because there's I would not, not a lot of guys. Well, Auburn's sitting at 14th in the SEC right now in recruiting. Yeah. And outside of Tennessee and Ole Miss there are, and Auburn, there are no other programs in the SEC with less than eight commitments. So for this narrative to be out there that everything's just going to be fine and dandy and that, uh, you know, just temper your expectations, it's going to be okay, it's early. Yeah, it's early for everybody. And Auburn's substantially behind everybody else in recruiting right now. Where do you think the the room for concern is? Give this grade a color on our traffic like of recruiting. I, yeah, I would say green. I don't think there's much of an issue right now. Really? I, I think we all expected this when Brian Harson was hired. I think we all expected that this is going to be a slow build. Because but does that mean there's not room for concern even though we expected it no it, it's june sure i mean it's barely june it's about to be july but auburn's going to fill out this class guys are going to come to auburn and they're leaders for a lot of four stars that have been i mean it would concern me if june rolled around and then all of a sudden like no one wanted to visit auburn but people were knocking on the door that first week was a very very busy week for brian harson so there is a lot of interest between very talented high school players and auburn like that is not. I don't think there's a concern there, and also I think for the first few years, Auburn is going to rely heavily on the transfer portal, and I I don't see that being a bad thing. Now, when people look at recruiting rankings, it's going to hurt you because those guys aren't in the in the class rankings. I do expect two four seven arrivals or ESPN to 
create a new formula where that is taken into consideration. I think we're going to have to see that just because there's too much money and too much eyeballs, uh, too many eyeballs that are going to be looking at that stuff. We're going to have to have a ranking system for classes that include transfer portal guys. But I mean, who, who's the who's the, uh, the the transfer running back that's enrolled, but he's not going to start until. Um, August, the latest running back that Auburn got. Like, he's a part of the 2022 class as far as the scholarship goes. It's like they're already doing things to get ready for next year. I'm not concerned at all. I do think um, it it stinks right now that Auburn's so low in the conference rankings last, if you said they're 14th. I didn't didn't realize that. But I, I don't think there's any cause for concern yet. Now, if it's November and we're in this situation, yeah, that's not good. See, that's where I go to panic. I think it's fine to say that there's a yellow light right here, room for caution, not panicking. I'm just a little like, all right, this like where could this class actually feasibly finish? I'm thinking best case they get inside the top 15, not top 10, because that's where Malzahn had this class typically living. But if they don't finish inside the top 20, that's what this previous coaching staff did this past year. I don't think you can afford to have back-to-back classes that finished barely inside the top eight not even in the sec assuming the transfer portal rules don't change anything drastically you're correct but i think it's going to i think you're going to see teams that some classes they realize like okay you know we've only got 15 guys because a lot of the the rankings depend on how many dudes you have signed and so you could have i mean if you sign 15 guys and maybe two of them are five stars and the rest are four and three stars like you're going to be okay. You're going to be in the top 20, maybe not much higher than that. But then if you go and get some really talented guys in the transfer portal, I think that's more valuable. Like I would rather Auburn get guys that have three years left of eligibility, but they've played 10 games in some other conference than a guy that is coming out of high school that's a high three-star, low four-star that you think he'll be able to play college football, but we don't know that. And you're going to see different ideologies about this. But also, I mean, we've seen it a ton over the course of the offseason with all these talented guys leaving. They step on campus for five minutes or, you know, for for one season, and then they transfer out. I think that's going to be something that's going to be more relevant to watch over the next few seasons than than the recruiting rankings. you got to keep who you've got. And you know, just talking with Brad LaRondo and you know, just getting more information about the staff, they're very focused on culture. We all know that Harson is a huge culture guy, but that's their way of saying when he was talking to me about it, it's like we need to make sure we keep these guys. And if you build culture slow and the right way and don't rush things, they're gonna be less worried about guys leaving. That is a very big concern that it seems like they're focused on, is making sure guys stay their whole time while they're on the planes. Speaking with Zach Blackerby of the Locked On Auburn podcast, we had another caller yesterday. Ty called in yesterday. Ty. Started talking about player development. Ty. And saying that player development is going to be a lot more important early on here for Brian Harson than maybe even recruiting. Where do you stand on the balance between player development and recruiting for this new coaching staff? I think getting players and making them better are both very, very important. And like that doesn't change from Gus to Harson. I think Harson's going to eventually be able to recruit on the same level of Gus Malzahn because all these reports come out about how unorganized it was, and now it's like a totally different world with Harson. And like, if all that's true, Gus recruited Auburn very, very well, and like it apparently was a disaster. And so, if Harson's able to put together a machine and actually, you know, treat things like a business and things like that, 
you should be better. So if Auburn's going to recruit at a higher level, I mean, they should be around six or seven in every every year. And I think we're a few years away from that, but uh, I think they're going to do that. As far as making guys better and improving players, player development and all that, uh, yeah, I think we've already seen some of that in regards to strength and conditioning. The new roster came out. You know, on Auburn's website a, a few months ago, early in the offseason, we're like looking through it, it's like, oh my gosh, everybody on this roster gained like 20 pounds. This yeah, they is fantastic. Got swole. Yeah. And, and then you saw him on A Day, and it's like, wow, Sean Shivers doesn't even have a neck anymore because he's so jacked. You know what I mean? And so I, I think you're going to see that. But also, I think we've already seen that. I mean, Auburn just has access to so much. All the SEC schools do, they have access to so much. I mean, they're going to do it a good job at making some of these guys better. That's just going to happen. I mean, people like to hate on Gus and say that that hasn't happened at Auburn in a while. And I just say that that is, that is just extremely incorrect. I mean, he was putting guys in the league at a higher clip than anybody in the, in the history of, of Auburn football. This past year stunk, but they still got guys in the league. It was just later picks um, at positions that we actually haven't really seen them get drafted before. So a, a little bit of irony there. But I think, uh, I think they're both important. I think the transfer portal makes recruiting rankings significantly less important. I, I really do. And so if I had to say what's the balance, if I had to pick an ideal world, I would say player development, 60, 65%, and recruiting wow. now at 40, 35%. I really think this transfer portal is going to change the game for things. From our text line, we had Taco text us. Taco. That's right. My intern Taco? That is, that okay. is correct. Got Your it. intern Taco. He's a he, company man. I love <laughs> it. He was listening to the show yesterday. We didn't tell him to text us, but he asked, which player do you think, incoming freshman, this is not a transfer, this excludes transfers, incoming freshman, which one do you think will make the biggest immediate impact? So we're talking 2021 here, yep. this season. It's got to be... It's got to be Lee Hunter. I'm trying to think of another answer that could be kind of interesting. We said Dylan Brooks yesterday. I said maybe not immediately, but by the end of his by the end of the season, if he he turns into if he evolves into a pass rusher that can get home consistently, I think his value, although it may have not have been immediate at the beginning of the season, his value will exceed that of Lee Hunter by the end of the year. Wow, I don't think he's going to have the opportunity this year. That's where I stand. I think Lee Hunter will have more of the opportunity to do it. So I guess it has to be him. I don't um, see any other freshmen getting on the field. Hunter will get on the field, I think. Yeah. As a number three running back, especially if Tanker Shivers misses a game you mean or Jarquez two. Hunter. Yes. <laughs> the other Hunter. I apologize. <laughs> there are multiple Hunters here. Yeah, Jarquez Hunter, I think, has a chance. To be fair, I think I would like to see Lee Hunter carry the football in goal line situations. That might be fun. Oh, I would too. <laughs> I would too. But I think Jarquez Hunter has a chance to pop right away. Uh, I really do. And I think him being dubbed. I, one of the Ironmen of the Week last yeah. week by Brian Harson. I think that's telling. He's been on campus for like five minutes, and he's already kind of outworking some of that. I was on another show last week, and I talked to, to, to the host about um, Devin Barrett. It's like we, we got done talking about how great Jarquez Hunter, everything that we're hearing about him is great, and it's like, I'm not hearing anything about Devin Barrett. And then the host turned around and said, like, yeah, he may not be on the team anymore. Like, at the end, come fall, like, would not be shocked if Devin Barrett's not even in the running back room anymore. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because I would have thought that we would hear something at this point of the offseason where it's like, yeah, he's not keeping up. Because Auburn fans are interested in his name because he's been around for so long. He's a four-star running back. Yeah, as a freshman, he was a, a swing pass extraordinaire in this Gus Malzahn offense. You put him in, it's like, up oh, they're throwing the swing pass to Devin Barrett. But, I, uh, yeah, I, you know what? I'll, I'll say Jarquez Hunter is my answer. 
Jarquez Hunter will be fun because I wonder about this. We don't have much time to talk about this, but I wonder if he would have been a four-star in a non-COVID world because he's from Mississippi, smaller area where he was from. There's not going to be a whole lot of yeah. eyes on him during this past pandemic season. How difficult was him to move up from a three-star to a four-star under those circumstances? Extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean, you look at a lot of the evidence and a lot of what he's done. I mean, he was uh, Mississippi State's 5A player of the year, which is exciting. You look, he's like a state deadlift champ, which one tells you he's strong, but two, it also tells you like he's not afraid of working his tail off because you don't accidentally become a deadlift champ. You know what I mean? Then that video that went viral amongst the Auburn fan base of him dunking in cowboy boots, like you look at it, it's like, okay, this guy can do a lot of things. And then you turn on his tape and it's like the guy's stocky. I mean, when you think of a guy that set a record for, you know, state deadlift, you think he's a power back. But the guy's got track speed. I think he ran the 200 in high school, too. I think he placed and stayed at that as well. So a guy that could do it all, uh, maybe COVID did hurt him. But, boy, it helped Auburn. Zach, tell everybody where they can find all your great content. Locked on Auburn drops every morning at 3 o'clock wherever you get your podcast. And for folks listening in the Auburn, Opelika, Lee County area, I am on uh, News Talk WANI 98.7 FM. For Auburn Oblaga this morning, 6 to 9, and I'm on Twitter at Z Blackerby. Noah, always a pleasure to be on the line, my friend. Hope you have a good afternoon, my man. Hour number two of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Jacob Hillman behind the board. If you want to call in, 334-321-1390. Text line, 334-564-1840. Find us on Twitter, at Point Gardner at Daw Pound. Keep up with all the content the show is putting out on RadioAlabamaSports.net and on the Radio Alabama Sports Facebook page, which is also where you can watch the show. We've got a live video stream up on the Radio Alabama Sports Facebook page, so if you ever miss a show, that's also a place where you can go and check it out as well as the podcast. Follow us on Twitter as well at Radio AL Sports between collegiate and high school sports content. We've got you covered once again. That's RadioAlabamaSports.net. Fun hour number one. Talked a lot about Auburn football in terms of their schedule analysis series against the Arkansas Razorbacks. Also talked a little NBA basketball as well as having Zach Blackerby of the Locked on Auburn podcast. Therefore, it's for hour number one. If you missed any of that, go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast starting off hour number two very similar to the way that we started off hour number one but talking about a different side of the football we continue our Auburn football schedule analysis series today talking about the Arkansas Razorbacks now we move on to the defensive side of the ball Lance take it away with your grading of the Arkansas Razorbacks let's start with the defensive line and I'm sure you've got some numbers from pro football focus that may either hinder or help what I'm about to say but I have this unit ranked as a D Two stars returned from a unit that was underwhelming, to say the least, in an SEC that couldn't play defense last season. They were 89th nationally in sacks gained per game, team sacks per game. And their leader in sacks from 2020 actually returns from this entire defense. But he only had two and a half sacks. Their leader, returning leader, is only had two and a half sacks last season, and he's on this defensive line. This defense also gave up two, 192 rushing yards per game. I'm sure the defensive line had a heavy hand in that. That was 92nd nationally, 12th best in the SEC. This unit didn't really do anything impressive. They didn't get after the quarterback. They didn't stop the run. 
they 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 had issues in all aspects of the game and statistically they were just underwhelming last season from what I can find. So I have this unit graded as a D simply because I don't think it's F tier. We reserve F tier for like the bad uh, bad group of five schools and like the FCS level kind of players, you know. But you even I mean? think that they're below average for college football standards? I think they're below average. I think uh, I think they are not performing well. I would agree with that. Pro Football Focus actually has them ranked as the 14th best SEC defensive line, so dead last there. Last year's statistics for this Arkansas defense, their rush defense grade by Pro Football Focus is a poor 52.7 and they didn't tackle that well either this is not a good Arkansas team against the run that's going to prove some issues for them on an SEC schedule that features a lot of teams that like to run the football first I'm with you defensive line is definitely one of the most poor it's bad and you mentioned them not tackling well, and you say, okay, well, who actually got all the tackles? Well, it came from the linebacking core. Which what, is talented. Who is, who, which is talented. I have them graded as a B, borderline A status, aside from the fact that this is a unit that still had a hand in allowing 34.9 points per game and 451 total yards per game allowed. That total yard total, or yeah, total yard total was 106 nationally last season. That was, that's just, that's just straight up not good. Straight up not good, and you can blame the entire defense, and I think the linebacking core is a part of that. They do bring back their top two tacklers from last season. Uh, They're both from this linebacking unit. They both had over 100 tackles, respectively. Grant Morgan, and then one of the greatest names in all of college football, number 10, Bumper Pool, returning for his senior season with the Razorbacks. Bumper Pool having 101 tackles, Grant Morgan having 111 and so those statistics may seem impressive, and I agree I agree with you. I think this linebacking core is talented, but you also got to think this unit still, statistically overall, was not performing well. Now, if there was a strength on this entire team, offensively and defensively, I would say it's the linebacking core. But even then, it's like I don't think they're A status because they did have a hand in allowing so many yards and so many points on defense. What's interesting about this defense is, and believe it or not, Pro Football Focus does not rank bumper pool highly. A lot of this has to do, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about the linebacking core. They benefited from a poor defensive line from a statistical standpoint. They were able to generate so many tackles out of necessity. I I remember a couple years ago doing play-by-play for for a high school up in Talladega County, and I was talking to one of the one of the assistant coaches and. I made a comment. I said, you know, this linebacker did really well. He had like 10 tackles. He was like, man, he was making them all 10 yards down the field. Is that really that good, right? And I think that's kind of the way I view this Arkansas Arkansas linebacking core. And once again, I'm trying to put it in perspective of the scope of the entire Southeastern Conference and where I would rank this group compared to other SEC linebackers. And I would probably have that in the middle of the pack in the SEC despite how good they are. I might even have these guys down as a C this Arkansas team's not hard to run the ball against. A lot of missed tackles on that side of the football. I might even pull them down a bit. Maybe their numbers really were inflated a lot based solely off of the fact that the defensive line was so poor. I think that's I think that's very fair to say. I could, I could, I could bump this unit down to a C and I'd be fine with it. Moving on, though, to defensive back, I have them graded as a D. Four starters returned from a unit that was 102nd nationally in passing yards allowed per game. Could also say that the reason they gave up so many yards passing was the defensive line was not helping that much. 
They were not getting to the quarterback. They were not sacking the quarterback. They weren't getting a whole lot of pressure. So that leaves your defensive backs out to dry. I think that played a part in it. But they still were statistically 102nd nationally. They they were not good. 99 tackles and three interceptions from Jalen Catalan, one of their defensive backs. Actually, I think he's the youngest defensive back in this group. No, actually, there's another sophomore. But Jalen Catalan. Stud of the defense. Stud of the defense, exactly. I think he's going to be incredibly talented. He's going to be one of those guys that I feel like stays in the SEC, stays in college ball up until his senior season. We see him as a as an All American type guy in his scene in, in his senior year. I'm excited to see what he does this season. Uh, very similar, I think, to what we were seeing from Derek Stingley, just a breakout freshman season. Now, I'm not saying he's Derek Stingley. I th- I'm just saying that I think this kid's really, really talented. This kid also, though, had to make 99 tackles, which tells you how bad this defense was. If you have, if your number three returning tackler had 99 tackles and he played defensive back, you probably were not saving a lot of yards and touchdowns on the back end. That's that's not good. That is not good at all. Interesting note here about Jalen Catalan, the safety for Arkansas that we're talking about versatile played 366 total snaps at free safety 185 total snaps at box safety which is just basically a an extra linebacker and then 136 total snaps at slot corner those were his three main spots that you saw Jalen Catalan last year according to pro football focus versatile he's someone that they've used to roam the top to be in this cover three system that Arkansas has to be someone that can defend the pass across the top as the free safety be someone that can kind of be a bit of a ball hawk safety as evidenced by his interception totals and whatnot but also they feel pretty comfortable with the guy in run support if they've brought him up closer to the line of scrimmage as a box safety then on top of that they've put him in the slot so they actually do feel somewhat comfortable with him in more of a direct coverage role against other wide receivers Catalan by far is the stud of the defense I don't think there's a whole lot to like about this defense I'm going to be honest with you Uh, that there's just one or two outliers that have excellent statistics outside of Catalan and I and I think that's more out of necessity because Arkansas can't let someone score a touchdown every play right somebody has to get a tackle and so I think the best part about this defense is Catalan and that's probably enough for me to say that maybe the secondary is the best part of this defense. I know that you ranked them as a D. I might go as far as to say that the secondary is probably the best part about this defense, despite how many pass yards they gave up, because I think there are actually a couple of legitimate studs back there, mainly led by Catalan at safety. Would you say that it's similar to the situation at LSU where they've got guys like Eli Ricks and Derek Stingley who will be first or second round selections? They were just in a really bad scheme. A much smaller role, but yes. It's like a, it's a, like it's definitely a, not first round draft picks but yeah, definitely good but they're players. definitely talented yeah I, I'm, I'm right there with you briefly we'll touch on special teams I've got them rated as a D slash C in the words of the Athlon Sports Magazine last season the Razorbacks had a virtually non-existent return game the place that kicking was subpar and the coverage teams had issues in a few games I think that pretty much sums it up I believe their kicker was 7-11 on field goals he's not returning this season I believe their punter was not all that special he was averaging let's see 43 no yeah 43.5 yards per punt I mean that's not terrible it's probably the best part about the special teams unit but returning outside of Devion Warren who last season was again team high 36 returns for an average of 20.4 yards per return but outside of that there weren't really a whole lot of guys that were doing much of anything C D eh they've got things that they definitely need to work on considering this is our Auburn football schedule analysis series 
I don't want to make this all about Arkansas. How does Auburn match up with this Arkansas team? Well, let's go through quickly by by unit and compare them to who they will be facing. Quarterback, obviously, facing the defense, facing that linebacking core. I would say that Auburn, as a, as a whole on defense, is probably much better than what K.J. Jefferson can bring to the table. And if you're talking about quarterbacks on the other side of the defense, I feel like for the linebackers for Auburn are... I'm, I'm, I, I, this is not a hit on K.J. Jefferson. I feel like they're incredibly intelligent. I feel like they are incredibly physical, really, really talented guys. Guys like Owen Papo uh, and uh, Zacoby McLean. I think they're going to have a field day in a game like this, especially against an offensive line that will improve. They're not going to let KJ Jefferson run all over no, the place, no, which is, not. is is something that he tries to bring to the table a little bit more than Felipe Franks. They're not going to just let him run all over the place. And on the flip side, this is an elite tier of DBs in the SEC. Right. Right. I, I think that I think that Auburn's going to be able to get after KJ Jefferson in this game. I feel like they're going to be able to stop Traylon Smith, something that they didn't do well last season. I'm going to be interested to see how the defensive backs hold up against some of these big physical receivers at Arkansas because we saw last season issues on Auburn's back end. It's just the question is is how much can Derek Mason improve this unit? I think guys like Roger McCreary and Smoke Monday will will have a field day in this game. I think they will be incredibly successful. I don't see Arkansas doing much of anything offensively against Auburn, not to say that they're not not to say that they're offensively inept I just think that they're not a good matchup for Auburn yeah I think it just everything defensively for Auburn is it's favorable in this matchup in hour number one I broke down a little bit of the passing scheme that Arkansas employs on the offensive side of the ball and I think it plays into Auburn's strength from a defensive back standpoint Auburn has good tacklers Mm. in their secondary and in their defensive backfield they're also extremely athletic quick they can they can move from sideline to sideline I remember the first game or not the first game the first snap from a day and you see smoke Monday making a play right and coming across the field to do it the safeties really showcased what they could do during the a day game now granted Chris Thompson Jr. is not there anymore and you lost one of those guys but I still think when you look at the defensive backfield for Auburn that is not a defensive backfield that you're going to be able to beat horizontally. Yeah. Now, vertically, yeah, we saw that time and time again last year with the deep ball and blown coverage. Things have changed a little bit, and does scheme fix that? Does the way in which that they treat the slot corner, does that change? We'll see. That's a major area that Auburn needs to improve on is defending the deep ball. But Arkansas does not throw the deep ball mm-hmm. a whole lot. They throw the ball at or around the line of scrimmage. That plays right into where Auburn wants to be at. I'm expecting Auburn to really make things difficult at Arkansas from throwing the football. And if you're asking for this game to come down to the trenches, Auburn's going to have the edge there just on town alone, especially from the linebackers. Yeah, I really like what you said there about Auburn being able to get sideline to sideline. It's something that these pa- this linebacking core for the past couple of seasons and this secondary, I think, has done really well. Whenever you look at really talented linebackers that Auburn has had in the past, guys like Deshaun Davis and, Davis and Trey Williams, they weren't exactly the fastest linebackers in coverage or getting to the edge if there was a run outside. These, the, these secondary players and guys like McLean and Papo are getting to that sideline really quick, and I really like the explosive explosiveness that they bring and I think it's another really good point that you made this Arkansas offense likes to throw the ball horizontally essentially and Auburn's going to be able to cover that if they do get sideline to sideline really well and then if they do decide to throw deep I don't know if it's necessarily going to be an issue because you talked about honing in on Traylon Burks and making sure that their one explosive guy is going to be is, is shut down of course I said earlier I don't I think there are other weapons in this offense that will eventually grow but if we are talking about their number one receiver 
he will get shut down in this game because Auburn has size it's with Smoke Monday at 6-3. Guys like Roger McCreer are going to be able to physically match up with him well and cover him well and lock him down. So everything you look offensively for Arkansas versus Auburn's defense, I think it matches up really well for the Tigers. There's just not a whole lot that Arkansas can do schematically to give themselves an advantage with what they've got on their roster right now. And then defensively for Arkansas against Auburn offensively, if you look at their numbers alone, you say Auburn's about to have a field day. If they're allowing about 200 rushing yards per game, about 259 yards passing per game, that matches up with what Auburn wants to do balance-wise perfectly. Think about what was which was one of Tank Bigsby's best games last year. What the was Arkansas his coming game. out party? The it was Arkansas the Arkansas game, game. yeah. That's right. Really, really, really excited if I were if I were playing for Harson as a player to to come into this game and know that I match up very well. So for folks saying that this is going to be a trap game, it's only it's only in their mind, right? Because they want to draw the comparison of last year and how close it was and how Auburn almost blew that game and then the the backward spike and they will say, well, Arkansas's hungry. Yes, all of that may be true. But this is a different coaching staff. Preparation is not going to be an issue. And I don't think focus is going to be an issue. I think there's going to be a different type of edginess on this team that won't allow teams like Arkansas to try and equalize like they did in that game last year. And, and, and these guys hear that too. All, these players hear this kind of stuff. And that I, I don't think that this is a game that's going to trip Auburn up. Now a team like Ole Miss, where maybe they do match up a little bit better at Auburn, against Auburn because of their explosiveness on the offensive side of the ball yes that one's a little bit better of a trap game for someone to sell me on Arkansas I'm not buying it whatsoever when you look at it from from a scheme perspective when you look at it from a matchups perspective Auburn should be able to continue its winning streak against Arkansas this year two things number one Man, I com- I'm sorry, I completely forgot it. We just got a, we got a text, and I was in the middle of reading it, and then I had to pause. Somebody texted in and said, Ronald, Ronald Acuna's chain checking in. Bumper Pool is the best name in college football. I it's mean, up I, there. I think it's, it's up, up there, there, along with Smoke Monday and Kool-Aid McKinstry. I think those are two fantastic names as well. Dakotas Crawford from LSU. That's another really, really good one. Wait, isn't, isn't it like Dakotas to ever do it? Isn't it something like that? Maybe. I, I know it is. I, I know it, had said that. For real, one, for real his first name is Dakotas. I know yeah. that for sure. Go and look up. See, confirm the to ever do it part because that that's 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 awesome. That's next level. That is the best name. Jacob also sent me a tweet from Adrian Wojnarowski, the NBA, obviously the one of the top reporters on the NBA scene. This is his tweet. There is no structural damage to Giannis Antetokounmpo's left knee after his awkward landing last night in Atlanta. Ligaments are sound. Sources tell at Zach Lowe underscore NBA and me. Timetable to return is unclear. So some news in the Atlanta Hawks Milwaukee Bucks series right there. What I was going to say is I'm really excited for this team because you say Arkansas is hungry. I think Auburn's just as hungry. And you come into a matchup like this, I think Harson's going to execute and win this game. And the second thing is, can we call this the Ghost of Malzahn Bowl game? Or because it's like Auburn, Auburn used to have Malzahn. Arkansas wanted Malzahn. They had you, Malzahn. They had Malzahn, essentially. Arkansas, Malzahn's from Arkansas. Can we just call this the Ghost of Gus Malzahn Give Malzahn Bowl game? two years at UCF to succeed. Arkansas lets go of Sam Pittman, and then you get a 6-6, six and 7-5 six, and five Arkansas team every year with Gus Malzahn at the helm. Those, and they'll probably be happy about it. And it's because the team will be fun to watch. You mentioned the text line. We had someone text into us. If you want to text the show, 334-564-1840, as well as call in, 334-321-1390. Jacob? Dakota's Crawford's middle name is not to ever do it. 
It's just it's just a nickname because darn it sounds cool. That would have been sick. It would have been. <laughs> Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we got a fun little segment. Coach, coordinator, fire. We'll pick uh, among those three categories. Find out what we're talking about on the other side of this break. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner, Lance Dawn, Jacob Hillman behind the board for you on the Wednesday edition of On the Line. If you want to call in, 334-321-1390. Text us at 334-564-1840. Find us on Twitter at Point Gardner at Dawn Pound. Also, follow ESPN 106.7 on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest going on at the station. The Max Roundtable, On the Line, The Drive with Bill Cameron, Analysis News and More, seven hours. Local sports talk radio, that's all on ESPN 106.7. Find the website on ESPNAU.com. Moving along here, I tease this going into this segment here. Coach Coordinator Fire. I'm sure some folks out there, a little bit more active on social media, have seen stuff along the lines of start, bench, cut. You get a group of three players and you had to choose who you would start, who you would bench, and who you would cut. Well, I took that to the coaches' ranks. And I said, one of these, you have to choose as your head coach. The other one has to be the coordinator, and the other one you fire. You can't have on the coaching staff. And this had me thinking about some interesting scenarios. But we got the star-studded group of three college football coaches. Now, at one point, they were all three in college football at the same time. They were undeniably the three best college football coaches at the same time. This is your group. You got Dabo Sweeney, Nick Saban, or Urban Meyer. Who's your head coach, who's your coordinator, and who would you let go? I want to get Jacob's thoughts on this as well because this is something interesting because I sat there for a minute and I was like, do I go aggressive and say cut Saban, have Swinney as my head coach and have Meyer as my coordinator because we talk about how we believe that Saban's not the best game day coach and I, I would say that Swinney's a pretty good recruiter, you know? So this is where I went. The easiest decision for me of this group was Urban Meyer as offensive coordinator. Same. Easiest one. I think he's the most, I, th- I think he is the poorest program manager of this bunch. Mm-hmm. So that excluded him from head coach. And then I, I didn't really want to fire him because I think he's the best tactician of this group. Dabo Sweeney has zero experience, really, as a coordinator at a major Power 5 program. Or maybe he, he wasn't even an offensive coordinator at all because he went from wide receivers coach to head coach. So I think Urban Meyer, from a tactical standpoint, and what follows Urban Meyer's legacy everywhere he goes is how he really brought the spread offense into the modern day of college football post like 2004 and what he did at Utah and Florida and at Ohio State. He, he made some tweaks to what Rich Rod's system was in the spread. By far, he's the best tactician of this group as evidenced by his coaching career in college football. Of course, he's in the NFL now, and you've got to be tactically sound to be coaching in the NFL. There's a little bit more of an emphasis on that at the next level there, too. So I think Urban Meyer, without a doubt, he's my coordinator because poorest program manager of this entire group. Then it comes down to who's going to be your head coach between Dabo Swinney and Nick Saban. And I waffled, but it it kind of depends on the parameters of this, right? Right. Are, Are we asking this for, like, right now for one game, or are we saying we're building a program? Does your answer change between those it two? It does. All right, one game. Who is it? Nick Saban. Really? See, I would have thought that was. I, I would have thought that, thought was, that was flipped. I would have thought you would have took Dabo Sweeney in the one game and and uh, Nick Saban for the long term. I, I want Dabo to build a program. Like if I'm signing the, if I just fired my coaching staff and I brought in, if I had the choice of those three guys, I'm bringing in Dabo and Urban Meyer because I think they can build a program. I don't, not that I don't think Saban can't, but I think Dabo just he's younger. He just has the ultimate 
program building skills. Well, they've done it at those two coaches have done it at worse locations than Saban has. Correct. Because Utah, let me tell you, Clemson, before that yeah. national championship at LSU, Gus Malzahn had a hotter start to his college football coaching career than Nick Saban did. Yeah. We need now it. that's not a hot take either. Like just go and look at the head coaching records. Let me tell y'all what Nick Saban did as a head coach before he won that first title at LSU. He was at Toledo for his first year, nine and two. What did Malzahn go like nine and three at Arkansas State? Goes to the Power Five at Michigan State, which is kind of comparable to Auburn to the SEC. This is what Nick Saban did at Michigan State: six and five and one, six and six, seven and five, six and six. Then he went nine and two. After he went nine and two with an overall thirty-four and twenty-four and one record at Michigan State, he leaves to go to LSU. Goes eight and four, ten and three, eight and five, and then he wins a natty at thirteen and one and seven and one back in two thousand three. And he followed up that. 13-1 season with a 9-3 season at 04. It, it, it kind of depends on the parameters of this entire conversation, but when you're talking about like building up a program that had like that has like less resources than Alabama and LSU, I would take Dabo Sweeney and Urban Meyer because they have experience doing that at locations such as Clemson and, and Utah. Yeah. We need we need a hotkey that has the audio from that TikTok that Dabo put out about a year or so oh, ago. No. no, we don't. Of him talking about uh, it, Coach Sweeney's got that drip and now he's on TikTok. We need we need that clip every time we talk about him. But I with that being said, Nick Saban's track record at Alabama and what he's done and, and me and another intern here at the station were having this debate earlier, would have what if Nick Saban hadn't gone to the NFL, would he had done at LSU what he's done at Alabama. What was that about to happen? Ooh. And the reason why I asked that question is, so Nick Saban wins his first title at LSU, goes 13-1, and and then he follows it up with a 9-3 season. Nick Saban wins his first title at Alabama in 2009, goes 14-0, and follows it up with a 10-3 and season. We didn't get to see what happened after that 9-3 and season at LSU because early on, I mean, that's still just his fourth year at Alabama. The, the machine was just getting started. I think the answer's pretty easy. Is it yes? Yeah, because... So you look, think it happens at LSU? I mean, LSU won in 07 and, like, yeah. So I think I think With the less answer, miles. So for coach coordinator fire here, for the sake of this, I would say I will take Nick Saban and Urban Meyer. Nick Saban is my head coach. Urban Meyer is my OC, and I would, I would cut Dabo Sweeney. I think it would be interesting to speculate if Saban stayed at LSU, who would Bama have right now, and then what would Auburn look like down the line? Because I'm assuming that they got rid of a couple of coaches in the past to compete at a championship level and to get past Alabama. So it would be interesting to see what the landscape looked like if that were the case. I don't know who Alabama would have now, but I know who they would have fired in 07. It would have been Rich Rodriguez. Oh, no. That would have been fun. That would have yes, been it would have been. <laughs> would have been fun for the boys. If Malzahn came in in 2013 and Saban was never at Alabama, do you think he'd still be here today? Yes. Probably. I think so. Probably. Because I think just I think the perceptions of everyone changes. And that's yep. true. And I, and I think recruiting would have, would have been a little bit better at Auburn as well. There would definitely be a whole lot more parity in college football. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nick Saban is like, and we're going to do this on a future show. I have compared college football coaches to Avengers characters. Nick Saban is Thanos. Just saying, <laughs> no question. And no. he's he's I he's done some great things for college football, but on the flip side, he's been terrible for parody. So, but still, I, I I would agree with you. I think I think what would have happened. You sold me. I think what would have happened at Alabama. What happened at Alabama would have happened at LSU had he not gone to the NFL. So I agree with that, and that's why I'll take Nick Saban here. I'll say Nick Saban and Urban Meyer. And I would, I would fire Dabo Swinney in this hypothetical situation. Let's go a different hypothetical route then. Long-term, this, these are the coaching tandems. Long-term, they're both at, their, at the respective universities that I'm about to suggest. Oh, we just ran out of time. 
We'll have to wait on the other side of this breakdown. You'll have to wait for that hypothetical oh, situation. <laughs> Dang. This is great. It's it's a Dabo versus Nick Saban, but the coordinators are gonna are gonna make you think. So we'll be back on the other side of this break. Stay tuned for that conversation coming up. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Intern Jacob behind the board for us. If you want to call in, 334-321-1390 or text into the show at 334-564-1840. We want to hear from you. What are your thoughts? Who would you take? You have to choose a head coach, a coordinator, or and then you have to let the other one go of this group. You got three. It was Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, and Urban Meyer. Who would, you, who would your head coach be out of the group? Who would your coordinator be? And who would you let go out of that group? I think the consensus in the studio was head coach Nick Saban, offensive coordinator Urban Meyer, and the Dabo Sweeney would be out the door. But I've got some hypothetical for you. I've got some hypotheticals for you guys that are offshoots of this. Dabo Sweeney as the head coach and Urban Meyer as the offensive coordinator at Clemson versus Nick Saban at Alabama with Kirby Smart as his defensive coordinator who wins out long term and and, and we will create the starting point right now right now is the starting point where these programs are at because this can't be Mm. Alabama's obviously got got a quicker starting point with Nick Saban and Alabama in terms of titles but since 2015 they're evened up right Clemson's won two national titles since 2015 what Alabama's won uh, let's see they've won three national titles since that point so since the 2015 mark Alabama and Clemson are fairly even. I would probably take Saban and Smart just because I know what you're getting. We saw it back in the early 2010s. We we know what we're getting with that. And we saw world domination. We I saw mean, Thanos. Those were the best defenses Alabama's ever had with Kirby Smart. 2011, time 2012. In college football, it was incredible. Though, I'm playing devil's advocate. I do here. agree with that. Devil's advocate here. What other program in college football was consistently good back then? Because if you look back at like 2012 BCS rankings, there was a time where Oklahoma State and Kansas State were in your top four. Good times, man. Good times. And Boise State was consistently there. That's right. I mean, there was no other program that could really compete with Alabama at that time. There was more parity after the Crimson Tide, but I have to remind everybody, from 2009 to 2012, Alabama won three out of four national championships. So are you saying that there still wouldn't be parity even if Dabo and Meyer were coaching together at Clemson? No, I'm saying for his argument, based on what we've seen before, we okay. saw this before, that Kirby Smart Bama's done this before, it was an easier college football on that stretch. Stanford was dominating too. Ah, whatever. That doesn't, that, that no. Well, my point is, like, yes, it's a different time. That's, I'm helping your argument, okay, Noah. Okay, I calm like, down. Yeah, I thought you were, I thought you were using that as a point against me. I was like, that doesn't mean no, anything no, 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 to no. me. Yeah, no, I'm looking at it, and, you know, you look at teams like Stanford up there. You have Oregon State, Northern Illinois, those kind of teams being Pause. in the yeah, top Northern 15. Illinois and Connecticut went to BCS games yes. at that time. Like, this is, no. This is Northern no. Illinois with Jordan Lynch, oh, if you remember man. that name. But so I'm saying starting point right now, Kirby Smart, defensive coordinator, Nick Saban head coach versus Dabo Sweeney and Urban Meyer at Clemson. Who wins more titles? I think I'm still gonna stick with Smart and Saban. 
I might go Dabo and Urban Meyer because offense is how you win titles these days, gentlemen. Can I bring out the flow chart for you, Noah? (laughs) Yes. Well, there goes Alabama. Are you an SEC team? Yes. And the fact that I dislike Alabama does not override that. The quarterback play at Clemson would be off the charts versus what would be at Alabama. Now, we don't know who the OC would be at Alabama, but... Just assuming that the defense is the best, better side of the ball at Alabama, the offense is the better side of the ball at Clemson in this hypothetical situation. I, th- I think you take that group. Well, let me make this a little bit closer then. Nick Saban as head coach, Jeremy Pruitt as defensive coordinator versus Dabo Sweeney and Urban Meyer. More national titles over like a five-year span. Pruitt's a good defensive coordinator. He was good. He was good. Mm, that's really, really tough. That's really tough. I'm still taking and, and, Dabo Sweeney and Urban Meyer at Clemson. Yeah, Over the course of how many years? Five years. Five years? Who more national championships? Mm. See, and another thing that I look at is Saban's had, like, the revolving door of coordinators, and he's been successful all the time. Dabo yeah. really hasn't had that. Can, That's right. Can I throw out another random hypothetical? Would either Kirby Smart, Nick Saban, or Meyer and Sweeney beat the 2019 LSU team? Repeat that. Would either... We have these two teams in our hypotheticals, right? Alabama and Clemson with Saban, Sweeney, and then their coordinator, Smart, and um, and Meyer. Would either of those teams, and with with those coaches, hypothetically beat the 2019 LSU team? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. It's just a random thought. Because I think because Alabama's defense would improve and Clemson's offense would improve. Which so Clemson you, teams would it be? Like, is it just like a random, like, one in the future? Like, after I, they've had time to build the I program? Think, I think, well, we're talking about 20, now, right? We were, yeah. Okay. We could, if you want to, and I mean, this is still a hypothetical, you could pull, like, another Clemson team. Because what I kind of wanted to do, I wanted team. to use the 2019 rosters, like, 2019 Alabama with Kirby Smart as a defensive coordinator, and 2019 sure. Clemson Let's with do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. Sure, that's fair. Who wins? I still think LSU. Me wins. too. We saw LSU beat Clemson. I don't know if Urban Meyer changes that. I mean, in that national championship, it would be closer. I think that Clemson would be able to keep up with them, and I think it would be a close game. But I do think that Joe Burrow would just—that would have been his clutch moment of the season, where he would have actually had his back against the wall for once. Well, he would have had the to Texas make a play. game earlier in the season. He did in a way. I don't in think Clemson had the defense in that national championship. No, to, and it showed. It. But they the needed thing just is, a lick of that defense, and I think even LSU had the edge there in that category. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying that LSU would would lose to Clemson, but I do think that both of those differences. 2019 Alabama was ranked behind Auburn, so and are definitely all- not. <laughs> Does Alabama, again, if that Alabama, Alabama def- if look that what Al- they did. Right, that Alabama offense was elite. If they had a lick of a defense that year. Didn't they, they lose by a score to LSU? That's yeah. right. They, they got behind early but Tua and then was fought the their way back. So who's the QB? Is it Tua or Mac Jones? Because Mac Jones wasn't Tua. ready to win a national championship. At that point, Tua. Which Tua oh, was so also- you were saying when they played in the regular season. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I take that Alabama team. If Kirby Smart's D.C., I take that Alabama team to, to beat LSU. In that, Do you take in that Alabama with Kirby as their DC to beat Auburn on the road? Because that was yes. not that was not yeah. what that yes. was not what what cost them that game. It was it was kicking in those two pick sixes. Yeah, I Auburn only scored Auburn like twenty one points even with the two pick sixes. So, you, to win. so here's my thing: Auburn scored three touchdowns at home, right? I think that's what they did, and then an, and then a, a a a wild field goal at halftime. It's like I can see Auburn still mustering twenty four points at home. I think they scored four touchdowns at home. Did they score four? The three touchdowns would have been 21 Bonix, and then the field goal. Bonix, Sean Shivers, Shivers um, Sal Canella. Sal Canella. 
I can't remember the other one though. If there was another one. Mm. Let me Auburn go still scored 45 points in that ballgame, though, right? 48. 40, yeah, but so the like, they would have had to have scored another Oh, no, touchdown. it would have been field goals, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe. I think Auburn, I think Auburn kicked a lot of field goals. So Wasn't Carl, Carlson was like four goals? I think Carlson was like four for four that game. Yeah, he was really clutch. Let me look real My quick. My answer does not change. I still, I I still do think, think that, I think yeah. Alabama would be Auburn. But, yes, I, do, I don't think it would be like Alabama blowing out Auburn because he's right that – that really was not the issue for Alabama that game. It was the turnovers and the kicking. Let's see. Auburn scored a touchdown in the first quarter. Um, let's see. A pick six and a field goal. A 14-yard touchdown pass to Canella and a 52-yard field goal in the second. They had a field goal in the third, a 100-yard interception return, and another field goal in the third, and then an 11-yard touchdown run from Sean Shivers in the fourth. So. Oh yeah, and they had a two point conversion. So that's where the that's where all the scoring's been messed up. But I do think that Kirby Smart, I think the adjustments would have been made in the second half where Auburn after, you know, things like, hey, the twelve men on the field, I don't know if that happens. With Kirby Smart and Nick Saban both on the sideline kind of controlling that. That's true. That's true. Who was the who was the defense coordinator that that's that's Pete Golding that would have yes, been Pete Golding's first year yeah and and Pete Golding is has improved since then. last year he was incredible he's learning on the job you know what's lost in all this Jeremy Pruitt's a senior defensive assistant for the New York Giants in the <laughs> NFL oh no because <laughs> we were talking about him a second ago you know in in these hypotheticals and I was like you know what's lost in all this. Jeremy Pruitt made it to the NFL. Working with Joe Judge? Is that, is that the Giants head coach name? Yeah. Birmingham Southern alum. All right, let me ask you Let me ask y'all another question. All right, another hypothetical. Stupid hypothetical thrown out at you. Would either of these Clemson or Alabama teams beat the 2017 Auburn team at their peak? Meaning that stretch where they beat Georgia and Alabama. With these, with these coaches yes. on their staffs? Yes. Yes. Clemson so. in a neutral site, Alabama on the road. You're saying no. fully healthy Auburn that had just beaten Alabama in the Iron Bowl Cl- without Carrion getting hurt. I, I, I think that they, I think that they have a pretty good shot. I don't I really do. I don't think if if Auburn plays Clemson in November. And are, are we talking about those 2017 rosters though? Because that because yes. Clemson with Kelly, Kelly Bryant, Bryant definitely not Auburn. Auburn yeah. would have eaten Clemson's lunch. Yeah. Well, well, think okay, of- that would been that would have just. That would have been a blowout. Well, think about this. They did play in 2017, and then and Auburn gave up all those yes, sacks. So, so you add them an offensive coordinator, and I think that makes Clemson, if anything, more difficult to handle on but the road. But you said right? at Auburn's peak. At oh, Auburn, Auburn, Auburn's peak. Auburn's okay. peak at the end of yeah. the year. They beat Alabama so, yeah. by two touchdowns. My, my I point think is, Auburn at the end of the year. If Auburn plays Clemson in November, as they eat is, their lunch. They win. Yeah, that would be ugly. Even if you have Urban, Mar- Urban Meyer, I really I don't think it changes that much yeah. because I think the offense – just gets Kelly going. Kelly Bryant is so limited in what he was able to do as a as a passer, and that was as evidenced wherever he was at in college football. I'm so glad he didn't come here. I'm so glad he didn't come here. No, I would okay. I would ra- I would rather have Bo Nix than an inept Kelly Bryant. When it comes to Alabama, though, it's it's kind of the same argument as 2019. Alabama's defense was not the problem. No, it wasn't. It held Auburn to 26. You're right. And really, the Auburn wins. Yeah, you're yeah. right. And I, and I don't. I don't know. I just think that this this touchdowns that Auburn scored in that game, like the Stidham run, and then remind me what the other touchdown was in that game. It might have been a lot closer though. Uh, it was a no, for sure. smart as defensive coordinator in the 2017 Iron Bowl. It might have been a closer game. And then the jump pass. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't care who your defensive coordinator is. Yeah, you're on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was a top five play call from Gus Malzahn. It was. That would be a fun segment. Top five play calls from Gus Malzahn during his time. If we Agreed. can even get to that point. But I still. think there, I oh, think, I have a, oh, I have a good take on that one. Actually. Well, what is it then? Unload it. Uh, th- this is in the top five. It's not number one or anything. But that last play in the national championship I was about to say, was yeah. incredible. That design and everything. Trey Mason, if he stays on the sideline, he has Greg Robinson in front of him. Yeah, so I, this is really sad, but if you can find this on YouTube, and I tell oh, people about this. Oh, the end zone this, view? No, like if you, just, if you just go on YouTube and watch the last play, even like if you're watching on TV, there's a seam for, yeah. for Trey Mason. And I think he sees it out of the corner of his eye because there's a slight hesitation and that slight hesitation leads him to get tackled. That play haunts me because mm-hmm. you're right. It was a solid play design. There was a there was a lane that if there was no hesitation, Trey Mason hits it and he takes it to the house. Right. There was nobody in front. I of mean, him. that's my thing is that it wasn't like he had Kozan in front of him. He had Greg Robinson, yeah. the most athletic lineman that you could imagine on that Auburn offensive line, and like. I think he could have laid a block down for anyone. I don't like being reminded of what could have been. Look, I'm giving been credit. The greatest play in Auburn history. I'm it giving credit to, to Gus find a way for to, that. To top the kick six, it would have been the greatest play in Auburn history. I mean, there would have been man 30 for 30 on that season. <laughs> there still should there be. Should be. There should be, but I don't think there would have been a doubt in anyone's mind if that happened. If you had three miracles like you had in that season. I mean, they would have started producing it like the next day. The one thing that I remember about that season the most is um, I remember uh, starting to get sick the week of the Iron Bowl and feeling the worst I've ever felt in my entire life while watching the SEC championship game. The worst I've ever felt in my entire life, but being so overjoyed by the fact that Auburn was doing so well, so it kind of evened out. That That is a good one. I hadn't thought about that. That one even made my top five. Because I, I it would have been number five for it. me. Yeah, because it, it didn't work. I hate to say yeah. that, but it didn't. I mean, it kind of worked. I would, but it but didn't. here's the thing: I wouldn't really put it on the play call though. No, it's not. It was just execution. It was a there good was a play slight call. hesitation. Right, there was. All right, the jump passes in there. Actually, we should we should like hold stay. <laughs> we should keep this for save this for day. another day. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we wrap up the show here on the Wednesday edition of On the Line. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Gall with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Jacob Hillman with us behind the board. Second listen to What's On TV tonight. Hey everybody, it's Noah Gardner with What's On Tonight. ABC's Wednesday lineup features three game shows. Press Your Luck is at 7, the $100,000 Pyramid is at 8, and Card Sharks is at 9. You might get hungry with Fox's lineup as a new episode of MasterChef is on at 7, and Crime Scene Kitchen on at 8. Some movie selections for tonight, Intergalactic Space Robots Do Battle on Earth. Transformers Dark of the Moon is on AMC at 7. One of the good Intergalactic Space Robots has his own movie. Bumblebee is on FX at 7. The Other Woman is on Freeform at 6.30. Back-to-back comedies on IFC with the internship at 5.40 and Anchorman The Legend of Ron Burgundy on at 8.25. In live sports, the Phoenix Suns and the Los Angeles Clippers clash in Game 6 of the Western Conference Finals in the NBA playoffs. Catch tonight's game at 8 on ESPN. Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Finals is on NBCSN at 7 as the Tampa Bay Lightning take a 1-0 lead over the Montreal Canadiens into Game 2. I'm Noah Gardner, and that's what's on TV tonight. 
Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you. Jacob Hillman behind the board. Wrapping up the Wednesday edition of On the Line. we got about four minutes left in the show. Number to call, 334-321-1390. Text number as well, 334-564-1840. Stick around after the show, The Drive with Bill Cameron, as they are every weekday from 4 to 6 on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Lot to talk about on today's show. And if you missed any of today's show, be sure to go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast recently i'm sure you guys have seen on social media maybe maybe it was auburn who posted this like what's your favorite memory inside jordan hare stadium text us that we're running out of time on the show but we'll take text even after the show 334-564-1840 what is your favorite memory inside jordan hare stadium even for folks out there listen to the podcast text us that as well we'll talk about that tomorrow because we were all reminiscing here during the break about some stuff in jordan hare and uh there's a lot of special memories there. And if you are not listening to the podcast and you're listening to this right now and you didn't catch the number, you can go to our Twitter account at ESPN1067. It's in our bio. Yeah. You can find the text number there. Again, 334-564-1840. What is your favorite memory inside Jordan-Hare Stadium? And this one, you know, a lot of people that were at Kick 6, if you were at Kick 6 and Prayer Jordan-Hare, you, you were going to say probably, majority of people would say Kick 6. I actually... Like, I remember prayer Jordan Hare a little bit more vividly than the kick six. And I was in the end zone, as you were, Jacob, as well, that Chris Davis ran into in the kick six. I just remember a whole lot more vividly all of the events leading up to prayer Jordan Hare. I was at that game with my dad, too. So that, that, that game rings a whole little bit more, a little bit more to me than, than the kick six was. It just for the sheer, just like that one was more miraculous to me than the kick six one and, and, and one that I probably hold in a little bit higher regard. And I, I was at, like you said, I was at the kick six and I'll go away from that. Cause obviously that is number one. But other than that, 2019 iron bowl would have to be it because mm-hmm. it was my first game, first iron bowl in the student section. And let me tell you, buddy, those are some top tier moments. Hey, yeah. when, 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 when that, when that football hit the upright, and there was like 30 people around me just on the ground. Like it was chaos. <laughs> people were falling over each other. Yeah. Water bottles were being thrown. Well, that's it that's was normal insane. though. Let's just be real. That's normal for a football game. Just people falling all over the place. Not to that extent. <laughs> I had never seen that. The sound the, of the thud that that football made on that upright on is, the broadcast. Yeah, was on hilarious. the broadcast is one of my favorite. Like you, you it's see like all a these clock highlights. At Twelve. Man. Yeah, you see all these highlights of in the NFL of players missing these field goals and it going dunk. But that one may be one of my favorites. It's just hilarious sound there and this is unique and i like that you bring up 2019 and those are some of my favorite memories too in jordan hare stadium from a fan perspective there are a few there are a couple moments where that stadium just kind of lost lost it like just energy level just goes crazy and there there are a couple memories that stick out more than others believe it or not 2016 LSU field goal game. Oh, so I was, I wasn't that there. Was, that was the game I was at. Yeah. When the officials came on and said that Auburn had actually won, there had been so much angst yes. that built up in the Auburn fan base over Tension. the last two years. Tension's a great word. 14 and 15, and then to win that game in 16 because that season may go off the rails. The Malzahn tenure may not make it to the point that it did if if Auburn doesn't win that game. And in that moment, that place got loud. Because those two teams do not like each other. Those two fan bases do not like each other. And there was some real, like, tension in that moment. I don't know if I've told this story, but I was at that game... And my mom was really, really tired. It was, it was I got to go to that game for my birthday that year, and she said, after Carlson makes this last field goal, I think we should go ahead and head home because Auburn's probably going to win. 
And I was like, okay. And then he made the field goal, and we left. And we got about a block away from the stadium, and the, the ground shook. literally started <laughs> shaking. I've never felt anything like it before. And we were just like, well, something either really, really good or really, really bad just happened. And then it went dead silent for like an ex- really long period of time. We were like, okay, like what happened? Like why is it so quiet all of a sudden? Because like there at, at that point there was just like normal noise, like people like cheering and stuff, but it went quiet. And then just a few minutes later, the ground shook, like sh- shook harder than the first time. And I was like, okay, something really, really crazy just happened. Like had to have happened. Yeah, there were a lot of emotions at the end of that game. I was a student back then and let me tell you, the scene from inside the student section, like, 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 angst is a good word, let me tell you, okay? I've got an underrated one really quickly. I was not at this one, but a friend of mine, Will Kelly, told me about 2011 Mississippi State. That was oh, wait, I, was, yeah. I was in the end zone where the dude, he, where they stopped him at the goal line. Will said that's the last he's ever heard, the stadium. Just like the explosiveness. Yeah, the, that one doesn't come to mind for me, but it was a hype moment. The yeah. loudest I've ever heard the stadium actually was 2017 Mississippi State. Though That game that was, was hype. Ooh. That game was so hype. Eli Stove. That stove is red hot. That stadium <laughs> was loud when he scored that first play. That's it for the Wednesday edition of On the Line. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Same time, same place. You know where to find us.